This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hi, good morning everyone. Well done for getting up on such a miserable day and uh, uh, heading in. Obviously the lure of a free red box mug just proves uh, too great. Um, is it, you oh, are, head. You are allowed to take them away, although I do realise that you've got to carry around a dirty mug for the rest of the day. Uh, but the idea is that you do take them and you show your friends how cool you are. It's a great pleasure to welcome Angela Rayner, the Shadow Education Secretary, um, joining us on what I know is a massive, for all Labour front benches, a massively busy week, and you've already got the conference cold. I have, yeah. So um, everybody keep your distance. <laughs> Let's get down um, to business then. Let's, let's, let's deal with the sort of the extraordinary mood at conference this year. Compared to last year, it were, last year's conference and maybe the one before, particularly speaking to Labour MPs, or a lot of Labour MPs, it was almost funereal, the sort of, oh, it's terrible, Jeremy's still leader, we're all facing certain doom. It's completely different this time. Yeah, it's, um, it's like we've done a 180. Good morning, everyone. It, it feels incredibly fantastic because I've been an MP since May 2015. And it's like um, politics went on steroids as soon as I was elected because, you know, we had the European referendum and then, like, our party fell apart and the Tories sort of fell apart, but they sort of kept it together for a little while, you know, papered over the cracks because they wanted to hold on to power. And we seem to have, you know, got our act together. Our manifesto, I think, was a key component in that. I think if I, the election hadn't gone as well, I mean, we didn't win, but the, if the election hadn't had gone as well as it did for us, I think we'd have been in a, if I'm honest, I think we'd have been in a different place, but we're in a fantastic place. The mood here um, is, is absolutely uh, brilliant. Uh, I've never seen queues like it, trying to get in the conference hall. You know, everybody seems to be having a real loving. I think that's how I've managed to get a cold. And <laughs> <laughs> so hopefully people will keep away from me now a little bit. I won't get as many snogs, but um, it has been, a, it's been an amazing couple of days so far. Everyone's in a really jubilant mood. We're building on some of the things we said in the manifesto and everyone's excited about you know trying to tease and uh, delve deeply into some of those magnificent policies that we were we were announcing so yeah it's good and contrary to that with what's happening in the Conservatives at the moment we couldn't be more happier I bounce around Parliament I don't even have to say it I have that look <laughs> on my face which is I know I know it's hard you'll get through it <laughs> um, it's interesting you said you didn't win uh, in the election there were quite a lot of people here who keep saying that you did uh, Emily Thornby was doing it the weekend. This idea that, that, that getting the same number of seats as Gordon Brown managed in 2010 is this sort of huge electoral triumph. Do you think that there needs to be a bit of sort of realism 
within the Labour Party that there's still a long way to, you know, to getting Jeremy Corbyn into the, the number 10, is, there's a long way to go to do that. I think so. I think we have to recognise where we were. I, I mean, I think the reason why people are so jubilant is, quite frankly, I mean, we were written off. I mean, Lord Ashcroft had my safe Labour seat down as a marginal and said I was in trouble. And I was knocking on doors in my constituency and thinking they're all like secret UKIPers and lying. And like, you know, suddenly somebody, somebody's lying to me and I was like practically asking them to sign to give me a kidney before I believed that they were going to vote for me. Um, and I think, to be honest, in the early days it was a bit bleak, you know, and like I say, I think the manifestos, I think the Conservative manifesto was a game changer for us as well. I don't think we're going to get that again. I don't think they'll be as bad. I mean, you, I don't think I've ever known a Prime Minister or an election um, campaign to be quite as bad as theirs was. Um, so I think that we will have challenges and that we've still got a long way to go to make sure that the electorate seals as the government in waiting. And I think that's what, one of the things that I've been conscious about in terms of what we put forward at this conference and how I frame the National Education Service. It's about not just about opposition now, because quite frankly, people didn't even see us as opposition Matt, yeah. when I took on this role. They saw me as here today, gone tomorrow, the person that nobody wanted, but the only person that was willing to serve. So we've come a long way since then, and I still think we've got, you know, we've got a long way to go to in the respect of the electorate, especially those that are not, you know, people that would normally vote for Labour. We've got to win them. So let's, let's talk about then. You, you find suddenly finding yourself. You were elected in 2015 to suddenly find yourself in the shadow cabinet as uh, shadow education secretary. How did that sort of come about? And what made you, when there were so many other people who were heading for the door, what made you step up and think that this was a good idea? Yeah, I mean, I suppose I was quite unique because um, I've never had that calling where, even Tony Blair, to be honest, I never got the, the oh, Tony's like God, and I, and I never got that with Jeremy either. So Jeremy, I didn't, I didn't support him to be leader of the Labour Party. Um, I supported Andy Burnham, who's our great Manchester mayor now. He's doing a great job. Um, but for me, it wasn't about the leader. It was about recognising, I suppose it comes from my trade union background, is recognising his democratic right to lead the party and at the time if you look back at what was happening at that time um, the Tories had wrecked the, the, the country you know that David Cameron had bet everything on the referendum and he'd lost that referendum arrogantly which I sort of guessed that he would lose it to be honest the only time I thought we would win that referendum was unfortunately when my friend Joe Cox was killed that was the only time I thought that Joe was going to pay for the referendum with a life but we still didn't get a result that um, that J David Cameron had bettered on and then he just sort of like went yeah sorry it didn't go the way I planned it I'm off and then they just sort of went into disarray and Boris and the rest of them said oh this is not good this ain't going to get me leader of the party for very long so I'm off and then they left Theresa May you know women again taking the power when the men have messed up <laughs> what did they do with the Tory party <laughs> yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah. so you know he um, he um, you know it, it ruined the the, the, the country and then left the place so I felt at that time we needed a strong opposition and we needed to be giving it to them and holding them to account and turning inwards on each other for me was certainly not the thing I felt we should do and <coughs> never relinquish power if you've got an opportunity to make change and this is why I respect councillors up and down the country of any political persuasion if I'm honest because it's a real public service to represent your community in the local council and you don't get thanked for it especially not when you've had seven years of cuts like councillors have had but you've got to do it you've got to be in the room and you've got to affect change even if it's restricted you've got to do your best in those circumstances so that's why I served that's why you stepped up so let, let's rewind uh, back to the beginning then in your upbringing in politics people always like to talk about a backstory and generally that just means that somebody didn't go to Eton 
and uh, what a gritty upbringing they had as a result. But your story is, I mean, probably unique in the House of Commons at the moment. Just sort of talk us through what happened to you when you were uh, a teenager and why you left school when you did. Yeah, because, you know, I was looking at the Conservatives, there's 60% that didn't go to private school, you know, they probably think they were hard done by and they've got their their great story. And, you know, I I come from, I would say it's quite a traditional working class background. I grew up on a a council estate and um, it's it's known locally as a priority one area, that's how they categorised us, which meant basically we hit all of the markers and public health England and all of the poverty markers that you don't want to hit. Um, so I grew up on, on the council estate there, my, my mum and dad were on benefits, my mum couldn't read or write, she, um, she was one of 12 from Withenshaw Estate and a couple of her, uh, her siblings were given to the Christian couple down the road, it wasn't like a social services thing, they just couldn't afford to feed them and they just went there and never sort of came back, they just gradually spent more time there and, and so my mum had a really difficult upbringing and she couldn't really, you know, I talk about the fact that we didn't have books when I was young but I, it was normal for me that, I, you, you have to understand that people talk about, oh gosh you're alive, you're poverty. That's how it was for me. I just understood that that's how things were. And the idea of you thinking you can become a doctor or, you know, those things were for other people. It wasn't even a conscious thing. It was just one of those arbitrary, you wouldn't even see yourself in those positions. So um, I remember going to school and, you know, my dad used to have sterilised milk and there was like a little bit left and that was for his tea in the morning. And they never got up. So we, we was like, you know, got, got ourselves ready for school, really hungry, not had any breakfast. There was never like cereal or anything in the house. And if you touch that little bit of milk, we'll be tidy. You know, that was for me, your dad's brew. And we'd go to school, me and my brother and sister, and we'd be really hungry, genuinely. I'm, you know, it is bad. And I was looking at the clock at lesson two, waiting to get to lunchtime. And I, in fact, um, one of the papers had asked me for the GCSE um, results. They'd asked me for a, a picture of myself from school. And I asked my mum and dad, have you got a picture of me from school? And the only picture my dad had was my school dinner token that he still carried. And it was the one that the school took that was on my picture to give me a free school dinner. And I remember, um, you know, feeling that hungry and feeling, you know, um, that, you know, life was tough. It was pretty tough. I used to go around my friends' houses and I'd say, ask your mum and dad if they'll let me stay for tea. And I just love Sunday dinner because we never got Sunday dinner in our house and, you know, um, and I'd ask the next day and my mate would say, no, you can't really. My mum said, no, you were here yesterday. And I'd sit on the curb outside waiting for them to come back out after they've had dinner. And, you know, but that was just the way it was for me. So um, all of the things, uh, I remember a debate in Parliament about teenage pregnancy and and all of these uh, politicians were talking about it in a, you know, this is terrible, this is a really bad thing. and We need to cut the numbers, the numbers are increasing in certain areas. And I'm shouting at the the screen, I I didn't actually attend the debate and my staff in the end said, just go and say something. Because I was really cross because even though um, having getting pregnant at 16 and having no qualifications is not the best start for anybody. You've got to understand that the way my life was, it actually saved me from where I could have potentially have been because I had a little person that I had to look after and I wanted to prove to everybody that I wasn't the scumbag that they thought I was going to be and I could be a good mum and that somebody was finally going to love me as much as I deserve to be loved and that's what pregnancy was for me. It saved me. I'm not suggesting that we should <laughs> advocate it 
But to suggest that these young women are just failures and that they've got nothing left in their lives, I was really quite cross that actually they couldn't understand the complex reasons and some of the advantages we can have in terms of changing people's lives around. And it did for me and my children in a much better position than I ever had. And my mum could only have dreamt of having a daughter that got to where I am today. So that's social mobility. And you've spoken in the past about the role that Shawstart played in helping you. Yeah. It, it, a really difficult time. You're a teenager, you, you know, said that your, your mum had struggled. So just learning the basics of what, how do you look after a baby? Well, my mum said, and this, this will sound really crude, and my mum didn't mean it like that, but she said, I could only love one person at a time, and that was your dad. Um, my mum never understood about the affection and the importance of giving your children a hug. And, and even now, I, when I was younger, I struggled when I had Ryan. And to a certain extent, I still do with, like, kisses and cuddles and when people are really over affectionate because as a child I never got that so it, it feels sometimes I have to really I had to teach myself how to cuddle my children that sounds really awful I'm a good mum I love my children I die for them but I had to teach myself that telling your children that they're really good at something and that encouraging them and reading to them I had to teach myself that that was that was the right thing to do because that wasn't how things were in my house and how do you find that knowledge people don't talk about that people going to say I don't know I, I didn't feel I didn't know how to love my children people don't talk about those things Webster Stratton parenting course and Shore Start centers they were the places where I had a safe space where I could teach myself how to be a better parent and it's changed my life and it's changed my children's lives you know it's and it's made me understand some of the struggles that my mum had you know I, I understand the complex reasons to why she wasn't able to be um, a better mother to me and therefore you break that chain of social deprivation that has, has gone on through the generations in my family. And what impact does your personal experience have on the brief that you now have because you've Having been through that system, rather than, like you said, a politician who hasn't had that experience and it's, you know, experiencing it all through spreadsheets and academic research and that sort of thing, what, what impact does that have on what you're trying to do with the, the education brief? Well, first of all, it made me more angry because I remember the Angela Rayner at 16 feeling like I was ashamed of myself, I'd let everybody down. And actually, there was a lot of reasons why I ended up where I was. And then there was a lot of barriers. And as a woman as well, a working class woman with a northern accent, there's a lot of unfair barriers in my way. So first of all, I got really angry, not just for me, but for all those people at home who feel like they are the ones that are the problem. So if they lose their job, if they're made redundant or they can't get on a course or they've not been able to achieve, then I started to feel really cross for them because we've put these barriers in the place whereas government to me should be breaking down those barriers. So the cuts to further education. Further education is an amazing route for most people who don't go their traditional academic route. You know, if you want a second or third chance of education, FE is the place. But you know, most people in the London bubble have never been to FE. They went to HE, so everyone talks about HE and nobody wants to talk about FE. So that annoys me. And the early years stuff, you know, when you see our Shore Start centres being lost in areas that we vitally need them, that really annoys me because you've got Theresa May saying that she wants to help people get by and she wants to support families. And she's doing the complete opposite of where we know the evidence is to help everybody get by. There's no point in doing it at 10. 
Separating children at age 10 is everybody who's studied anything to do with social mobility or education, you know that the 0 to 5 is the most important time to get in there for health, education, and it will pay dividends in the end. It will pay, even in just a justice department, it will pay. Um, so I couldn't understand why people were holding people back and then I realised that Santa Claus is not real and some people really don't believe in social mobility, they just say it. Given how passionate you are about the, the importance of 0 to 5, did you argue f for, because the, the flagship Labour Party policy on tuition fees, lots of people say that scrapping tuition fees actually just helps the wealthiest graduates who, they're the only ones who would end up paying it off anyway. That actually, that £11 billion spent on early years would have a much bigger impact in terms of social mobility and helping the poorest get on than saving wealthy graduates some money later on in life. Yeah, and you know, I, I make, first of all, I make no apologies for scrapping tuition fees because we all benefit from graduates and the skills. I don't actually see it as the taxpayers paying for other people's education. I see it as an investment and, you know, I, I see it as that way. So I think that's the right thing to do. But I also make no apologies for the fact that over 20 billion of our tax raising revenue went on education. It went on early years and we'll say more about that on Tuesday in my speech. Again, um, we'll be doing more on early years because that's where you're going to get the most investment. But you can't neglect the fact that the Conservatives have also damaged our lifelong learning, the open university that Labour introduced and also our FE sector it's in a mess it needs that financial support so we put a lot of energy into that and as most people in this room will know we've been campaigning hard against the cuts that our schools have faced our schools are in crisis at the moment and the government are fixated on the Gove legacy of free schools and academies which I think is just adding further fragmentation instead of actually dealing with the real issues which is funding crisis and recruitment and retention issues of our teachers where are you on academies? Because obviously it was uh, started by Tony Blair, massively expanded by the Coalition and Michael Gove. What's your... Because there are some people who'd like all academies to be reversed and taken back into county council control. What, what do you think should yeah. happen? I'm not going backwards. I mean, one of the things... Ed Miliband gave me some really, really good advice when I first took on this brief. And he said, Angela, he said, really, the only bit of advice I can give you is don't get bogged down in structures. Standards, not structures. And I think he's absolutely right. And I've used that, actually, in everything that I've done in terms of how do we get to a position where schools have actually... Because I think schools need to be more accountable. I think academies at the moment are not accountable to their local areas. You've got this... Uh, bizarre situation where most parents listening to this podcast and people in this room will know if they've got uh, young children that actually they're not getting into school places now they've been bussed from one end of the borough to the other and the council have responsibility for school places but absolutely no powers to create school places and the places that they want so giving that power and control to local communities is something that I'm really interested in doing but just recreating the local education authority that's not I'm not interested in that Actually, we're looking at things, for example, the, the local enterprise partnerships that Labour introduced. Is this something we can do on the devolution or the skills agenda with John McDonald's investment strategy above, um, around region, regions? How do we get business involved in that? Because, of course, our young people want jobs, decent jobs as well. So we need to link that. I visited um, Bentley in Crewe and Nantwich and they were saying how frustrating it was that they were not able to get the careers path to get all of those skilled trade that they needed within, um, within the school education structure. So they had to create their own yeah. academy chain. And I thought, well, why, why does that happen when the state should really be able to enable those businesses to do well? And I, and I see a, di a 
there is a fragmentation of that system and we know through the OECD and the London Challenge that actually collaboration rather than com competition within our schools are the way forward. So rather than being prescriptive, and this is why I won't close good schools, this is why I won't say I'm going to close grammar schools or academies or anything else, because most parents don't care what you call a school, they just want a good local school for their children to go to. So I'm about how do we create good local schools, how do we intervene to ensure that that happens and what are the values that make a school good, so having a broad-based curriculum, having qualified teachers, um, all of these things that I actually think are the important things that we need to be looking at and addressing rather than fixated on a particular ideology, which is what I think the Conservatives have done wrong with their programme. Because I think I, I would describe you as a sort of different politician to a lot of the others we see in Westminster, is there anything that you can see in what Michael Gove did in education that you think was good? Well, to be honest, my politics is quite, I'm a pragmatist, so I don't, I didn't do, I didn't go to university and study Marxism and things like that, so I don't do student what, politics. What could you possibly mean? <laughs> <laughs> so I hear it all and I, I sort of, my, my, my experience and the reason why I'm in politics is not to do the fluffy debates about whether Marxism or parts of Marxism is right and whether, you know, what's happening in North Korea versus Russia and the political battles of that. Um, you know, that doesn't interest me. What interests me is keeping our country safe, keeping our young people educated and all of those things. So I'm a pragmatist in it. So I don't, you know, if something's good, Michael Gove talks about, um, he was quite rather helpful with his intervention recently, but people don't like him in the education sector. He's a bit of a hate figure. I always get like a pan of my response when I go to teachers <laughs> and I mention his name, they go, boom. So it's always good, you know, if it's a bit flat, the room, if you mention his name, it sort of energises the place. But he, he criticised the money that was going to um, private schools and to grammars, you know, so he, he says, you know, if taxpayers are giving money, then they should get something for it. So that was rather helpful. On the, uh, on the subject of, uh, you know, people who go to university and study Marxism, you're not part of, there has been some criticism that the Labour Party now is at the, at the top is a sort of slightly North London <laughs> intellectual uh, clique. Can you tell by my accent? But you're, <laughs> I, I get the feeling that you don't spend a lot of time thinking about Venezuela. No, <laughs> no. And I remember Andrew Neil there uh, when uh, Vidal Castro died and Andrew Neil says, you know, he murdered 15,000 people. I said, to be honest, Andrew, I said, it's not something that comes up on the doorstep in Ashton Underline very often. <laughs> I've got to be honest with you here, you know, I know you're fixated with it and you love it all, but actually in Ashton Underline people are not really talking about that. It's, um, so yeah, it's, it, I don't fixate on things like that because at the end of the day, that's not what my constituents are interested in. And I think, you know, some of the mess we've got ourselves in, in terms of, you know, we're leaving Europe and people are feeling pretty uncertain about the future. And the reason for that is because successive governments have ignored people in the North. They think that we're sort of, you know, a bit Luddite and, dare I say, inbred. You know, they genuinely think that we're all like a bit weird with three eyes and that we're downwind from Sellafield, so we clearly haven't got an opinion that's worth listening to and that somehow that we just don't understand what's good for us. Well, we understand that for decades we feel left behind and that we've not had the investment, the structural investment in our community. It's not a new hospital because we've all got diabetes and overweight. That's not what we're talking about. We actually want our children not have to go to London if they manage to get a decent education and leave. We want our young people with amazing minds to do things in our constituents, in constituencies and we want to build the fourth industrial revolution. That's what we want in places like Greater Manchester and they're really cheesed off that they haven't felt that they've been given that. So 
there's a lot of things that have happened over the last few decades where successive governments have let people down that are not in that you know bubble yeah. that we see where the economy has actually done well because you know for example on brexit you know they hear a lot of people um maybe people in this room i apologize that uh, you know have come from a very middle class type background that university graduates doing all right you know not loads of money but certainly got got enough to get by etc and they hear people like that and businesses now crying and going oh it's terrible we're leaving europe it's going to be bad for the economy etc but people uh, in the north have been feeling that for some time. So for them, they're just thinking, well, something's going right because these are feeling it now <laughs> because we've been feeling it for a long time and nobody's been listening to us. So they're thinking maybe someone's going to listen to us now. What, now it's affecting their lives and they're seeing um, difficulties on the horizon because, quite frankly, we've been feeling that for some time and nobody's wanted to invest in the way that we need that investment if you're going to bring private enterprise into places like the northwest you know if you want to make the northern powerhouse a success then you've got to enable businesses so the state has to invest in those areas because it's risky if you're talking about new technologies um, it's risky to invest in those areas you've got to plow the infrastructure um, and i think that's what the state should be doing and i think we haven't been ambitious enough i think you know hammond could have really stole our funder they've poured a load of investment in when you know borrowing rates are low we're not in a great place anyway so you can't really go much skiddle row than where we are so he could have done that he could have given a keynesian investment into regions that have felt for decades they've been left behind but they've they've been left wanting and they've actually given the places like manchester a power cut rather than you know a powerhouse so when people feel that they know that just on the subject of universities i'll take questions in a sec i mean i didn't go to university either in in the westminster bubble that you're sort of some sort of weirdo uh, you know because most people in Westminster didn't just go to university they all went to the same college and they're all yeah. married to each other but anyway that's a, that's a completely different uh, story do you think the the target of getting 50% of people to go to university was a mistake that this sort of obsession with people going to university for the sake of it rather than whether or not it's the right thing to do or you know for their jobs or careers or life I think it was I think there's a couple of things within that I think the, the, the short answer is yes because it was at the expense of everything else and I don't think that one should uh, trump any other. Um, but the more complex answer is we've, we've done this throughout schools. We've got on this treadmill now, whereas if your child's not done their sats and got the top of the class and they haven't got nine A stars and they don't go to this particular place to do their A levels or this particular university, then somehow their life's over. I mean, I'm sure, in fact, I know that my parents, when I turned up at 16 and said I'm pregnant, they didn't look at it and think she's going to really make something of herself. Um, so, you know, we've got this treadmill where we're saying that parents have to compete their children onto this path. And if your child's more, I mean, I wasn't an academic person. I still don't. I hate reading bills. That's why I've advisors that help me with that because I everybody mean, hates reading bills though, yeah they, they are I, I'm not, I don't know I've, no, I've no. met some people I'm not naming any names Joe but there is some people <laughs> that really like reading big lengthy documents and they get really quite giddy about it I don't um, but you know it doesn't make for us all to be the same and if you're I was a sort of more of a you know hands-on vocational type learner and I really found my love of learning when I did my vocational course for care work because it was practical skills and I was a practical learner and if you're if you're somebody like that if you're a carpenter if you're an engineer and you know you're much more hands-on about the way you you learn now 
by the age of 11, 12, you're told you're not, you're not right. There's something not right about you because you're not going down the baccalaureate route. And we don't need a load of barristers. We need some, but we also need plumbers, electricians, bricklayers. We need all of these fundamental skills as well, which we should value. We need care workers, Matt. Which is what you did. Which is what I did, you know. We need care workers. One of the best, most valuable jobs I ever did was looking after people in their palliative care in their last hours of their life. It was um, amazing and none of them asked me for my qualifications. They wanted somebody that actually was going to give them a little bit of time and compassion. And we need that. What value do you place on that? Well, I tell you, at the moment, you place a very low value on that. So our older people, some of them war veterans that have fought for the country that we actually enjoy today, are left um, lonely without the care they need, telling them that they're living too long at the moment. What sort of society is that? <laughs> okay, last question then. Would you ever want to be leader? Uh, well, you know, I get asked this question a lot and to be honest, it's only been just over two years since I ended up in the shadow cabinet and people have said what a successful um, year that we've had and to be honest part of what I do is this feeling like I'm not good enough, I have to prove myself and I, I honestly all I've wanted to do is for people in Ashton and the Line to be proud of me because they, they voted for me and there's nothing more surreal than I vote for myself in the last general election like it was, it was amazing and my son got to vote for me for the first time and knowing that someone's put their trust in you to represent them I just wanted to do a good job and anything that I do is about making sure that for those people that have put their trust in me to represent them and to look after their children and you know their future if I can do a good job I don't care what job it is as long as I'm doing the right thing and they're proud of me then I'll keep going that was a non-answer but it was a brilliant one uh, it's been an absolute pleasure ladies and gentlemen Angela Rayner vacation is coming up you can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 